I, I love being here on Sunday, being with everybody. I hope you do. Um, we're in a series we're calling Foundations. We're looking at uh, the book of Acts through the summer, and we're, we're taking time just to see Luke's perspective on the beginning of the church and try to learn what we can as a foundation for us. What is it that the book of Acts, written by Luke, can teach us about what the church looks like and how believers within that church operate? And so let's, as, as we settle into this, and I'll just say, to, today's message really uh, is about the gospel. The whole scripture is a story, is, is the gospel story. But we're going to look at this one little sliver where things are starting to change in the way God presents that message because the gospel has now been completed through Christ and the story has changed and he's going to use the church to deliver that completed message to, to the world. That's us. So uh, we're in Acts 2. I think you have it if you have one of the sheets, but Acts 2, 14 through 41. This is Peter's message when uh, the, the, the disciples had been empowered by the Holy Spirit. We talked about that last week, this arrival of the Spirit and everything changed. And they were speaking in these different languages and people were confused. And Peter says, hey, I'll, I'll, to, speaking to thousands of people, he says, look, these people aren't drunk like some of you have said, but they're actually telling you about the message of Jesus, the, the gospel itself. And so Peter then launches into this message that we're going to talk about just for a moment. But he's, he's going to share the gospel, but he's also going to see a reaction in many of the people that were there. And so we both need to hear that message of the gospel, internalize it, and then think about what it means to, uh, to ourselves, to the world, and the people that we're with. One of the things that is, if you look back in history, you'll notice about the early church is that its rise through the Roman Empire was truly epic. Uh, from that moment of Pentecost on, the growth of the church was just this flame that it just engulfed that part of the world. But when you look at that time between, let's say, the, the dinner with Jesus in the upper room and Pentecost, those 50 days, the disciples were in a really rough time. So I want to, before we get into the message, I want to just start there and orient us to a little bit of what they might have been feeling, see if we can engage with that just a bit. It was a little bit rough. I think they might have been confused. Because remember, they thought Jesus was on his way to political and military power. Remember that? They're always asking him, even at the Last Supper, okay, am I going to be like on your right hand and who's going to be on your left hand and how are we going to run this show together with you? And Jesus is like, well, it's really not going to go like that. Um, so they're confused by that. And then, you know, they're on that trajectory and Jesus immediately after is crucified. But that had to be confusing. That had to be like just a gut punch to them, right? And we all know the stories, how that, how that must, and we must, we've thought about how it must have felt. And then the resurrection. So pretty much seems like they were surprised by that as well, even though Jesus had talked about it. And now they're back on track. They're like, okay, now he's, he's back, he's here in power, he's miraculously with us, he's presenting himself to, to hundreds of people at a time. Well, he must be headed towards military, political, and religious power again. So they're interacting with him like that. In the passage that we read last week, they're, they're saying, um, this is, uh, this is at the, right at the, before the ascension. They say, Jesus, is this the time when you're going to rise to power, and can we go with you in that, and how does that all work? And he's like, actually, that's not what's going to happen here at all. And then, like, literally in the next verse, he's like, ascension, I'm gone. And he gives them their marching orders. 
to bring the gospel to the world. So you can imagine this crazy time that they're in trying to figure out what is going on. Well, uh, I've tried to, personally, I love to put myself in their shoes as much as I can. And it's hard for me to imagine the feeling that I would have had when Jesus said, it's better for me to completely leave you than to stay with you. It's better for me to be gone and send the Holy Spirit to be with you than for me to stay with you. I'm going to send you a helper, and the helper's going to come in a few days. I want you to wait. I've always been moved by the story of Peter. He's sort of the guy who we, we can follow his story of despair, where Peter ends up you know, around this campfire when Jesus is being accused, right? And three times, as Jesus predicted, he rejects Christ, right? In the last one, in one of the Gospels, we see that Jesus actually looks at him at that moment when he, uh, when he denies knowing Jesus and, he, and the person who's confronted him is a child. I mean, that's a low point. That's a low, that had to be a painful, low moment for Peter. And then he had to move through these confusing times of these next 50 days and Jesus leaving and saying, it's up to you guys. And then when the, the, uh, the spirit comes and this miracle happens of these different tongues being spoken, Peter steps up and speaks or preaches to thousands of people. I'm going to guess that Peter wasn't a great speaker right? He's a fisherman. And suddenly he's speaking to all these people. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, I don't know about you, but I get really nervous when I get up in front of any number of people. Anybody like that? Okay. So Peter, afraid of this, or unable to stand up and say who he was in front of this child, is now standing up before all of these people. There's some kind of dramatic transformation that has happened in his life. So historians have been baffled by this. Like, how did Christianity rise so fast? They weren't the only sect. Jesus wasn't the only person claiming to be a Messiah at that time. It was a pretty popular thing to do. The followers of Jesus weren't rich. They weren't influential. They, They were generous, and they treated all people alike, women and men, Poor people and rich people. This was totally different. And there was no model for this in, in, their, uh, in their world. But the church grew. The gospel went out. And they were joyous even when they were persecuted. Do these things reflect us as believers today? Let me read you this quote. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have it on the, on the board, but I think you can follow along. This is a, a a professor at Yale several years ago, his name Scott Lederette. He said, oh, do I have this one, Scotty? I don't think I do. The more one examines the various factors which seem to account for the extraordinary victory of Christianity, the more one is driven to search for a cause underlying them all. It is clear that at the very beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy virtually unequaled in history. Nothing else could explain the surge of the early Christian movement. And later he says, what caused the release of energy lies outside the realm in which modern historians are supposed to move. 
But before I'm a historian, I'm a human. How can I close my eyes to the obvious explanation that something supernatural happened? So, what I want to do is, is two things today. I want to say, if you're a believer, I want you to think about the gospel and the things that Peter says in the sense of saying, how can I identify, work with how he does this? What can I learn from Peter about bringing the gospel to my community, the good news of Jesus? If you don't know Jesus, this is an opportunity to hear this beautiful transformational story of what God has done for us and how we engage with that. So the question is, how will you engage with Peter's message? Right? So that's where we're headed. We're going to talk about Peter's communication. We're going to talk about the conviction that the people felt. And we're going to talk about the confession that the people uh, spoke afterwards. So communication, conviction, and confession. So Peter's communication. He uses very few words to get his message across. Uh, in, in fact, I counted them. There's about 550 words recorded for his message. Just 550 words. That means if it was me speaking, it would have taken about six minutes. Six minutes. I'm 550 words, literally, into this message right now. <laughs> it, <laughs> that's amazing what happened <laughs> with that few number of words. Almost half of his words, and we didn't read all of this, we just read some of it, half of his words were direct quotes from memory from the scripture. So about 275 words, almost 300 of his 550 words were scripture that he, he spoke to these people. So pretty amazing, small message. But here's the thing, he knows exactly who his audience is. He knows who he's talking to. Remember, all kinds of people are there, and all kinds of people have heard uh, the great history of what God has done, which is how it describes what has been going out from the disciples. But he narrows it down, and he says, men of Israel, people of Israel, brothers and sisters, I want you to hear this. So all these people are in town for this, this uh, festival, the, fest the Pentecost festival. They're there, and he says, I want to speak to the people of Israel. So he knows who he is talking to. I want, if you're a believer, I want you to be thinking about this. Applicationally, how does it work out in your life? He knows who he is speaking to. He speaks to them in a dialect that they understood clearly. He engages, basically engages them on their turf, in their space. They're there. He's there. He speaks to them in a way that they understand. He uses passages from Joel, for instance, that they will know and, re and resonate with, right? It's almost, like, uh, he, it's almost like for them, it would be like he was singing a song that they enjoyed. They would jump in and they would know the words he was going to say before he said them. That's what's happening when he's speaking to them. Their ears are sort of perking up because he's speaking to them in their language from a context that they will understand. But that... That brings me to this thing that, that Paul talks about that's so important for us as believers. If you are someone who follows Jesus, one of the most important principles of bringing the gospel to other people, to people outside of the church, is that the words of the gospel have to be communicated. The words of the truth have to be communicated. In Romans 10, 14, and I'm, I'm going to use the message translation for this, 
Paul says this, how can people call for help if they don't know who to trust? And how can they know who to trust if they haven't heard of the one who can be trusted? And how can they hear if no one tells them? People can see a transformed life, yes. They can see uh, that gospel lived out in integrity and character and activities that people are involved with, but they need to hear the words of the gospel. That there is a good God who created man and man broke relationship with him. And then Jesus, by his own accord and work with the Father, gave himself up to pay the penalty for that rebellion. And by faith, we come to know him. The simple words of the gospel, that information needs to be communicated. The way I like to say is we need to find a way to get the gospel into the hearts and minds of our friends. So we we really can't keep this to ourselves. Uh, Many of you have have met my daughter, Sarah. She's uh, just graduated from Colorado State and is now kind of getting off onto her own. And when she was a little girl, uh, from the beginning, she was a hungry child, like food. And so, I, I mean, many of you can relate to this. If you're a parent, she would come down way before I was awake and just rip the covers off of me, not Claire, I don't know why me, and she'd say, feed me, Daddy, feed me, Daddy, feed me, Daddy. You know, just a little baby, barely reaching over the bed. So um, this was a, a sort of a theme. And at one time, she was two and a half or three, right around in there, just, you know, a a little bit over time, I don't know, I wish I had written the date down, but she must have been three, and so it was after dinner one night, and somebody had, I guess Claire had picked up some of these cookies uh, that I really like, they're the Salsalito cookies, you know, the, and, and so they were in the, our pantry, and our pantry has a, was at that time had a, a door, like a closet door, that when you shut it, when you opened it, the light came on, it had a little button, and you shut it, the light went off. And so I get this idea. I'm thinking, well, if I really want that cookie and I, there's only one left and I don't want to share it with Sarah, then I'm going to have to sneak in there and rely on the, the possibility that she is still young enough to think that I may have disappeared in the kitchen because she's that young. So I get up when she's distracted with her, whatever she's doing, and I went down the hall and I get around the corner. I hear this pitter-patter of her feet. I'm like, oh, yeah, I got to hurry. So I jump in the closet as quiet as I can, shut the door. And I'm like, this is going to work because the light goes off and she can't reach the handle. And so I take the cookie and I'm eating the cookie so my three-year-old daughter (laughs) can't have any of it. And, of course, she doesn't think I've disappeared. And she's like, Daddy, Daddy, I want some of that cookie. I'm like, I'm totally silent in the dark. Full-grown man hiding from my daughter in the dark eating a cookie for myself. Um, and I've always looked back to that, to that time, that story, to remind me a, a constant, of a constant reminder of the, the beautiful, uh, transforming truth of the gospel that I, as a believer, often keep to myself. I have this thing, this beautiful thing that's transformed my life, and I keep it to myself when I need to bring it to the people who need it. But I, it, it's almost as ridiculous as me hiding from my, my three-year-old daughter. So Peter, his communication is brief, 
but he knows his audience. He knows what they need. He speaks their language. He's courageous, and he brings them the words of the gospel. He doesn't keep it to himself. He just puts it out there. All right, so communication, conviction. The people were deeply, personally convicted by what Peter had to say. Now, halfway through his message, he's been confirming for them from the Hebrew scripture that Jesus is who he said he was, that he wasn't a charlatan. But then he says, all right, you know, people, what happened. Jesus was put to death. He was crucified brutally. And it wasn't just your fault, but you did it. Let me read it to you. This is in Acts 2, 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. That doesn't seem like a great way to encourage people to come to know Jesus, to, come into the, to take the information of the gospel and believe and come to know God. But is it really possible that they nailed Jesus to the cross? In what sense is that true? Think about it for a moment. These people have come into town over the course of the last 50 days. Most of them probably weren't at the crucifixion, nor did they really care to be there. So why was it that, Paul, that Peter could say, you put him to death, you crucified and killed him? They weren't there. But the truth is that it was their sin that put him on the cross. See, the Spirit was at work through the, wor- the words of Peter, just like Jesus said it would be. At the Last Supper, remember another time when they're still expecting political and military and religious power, in John 16, Jesus says this, uh, verses 7 and 8, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I leave you. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit will convict. The Spirit will move. But the truth has to be told. Part of the good news of the gospel is the bad news. And the bad news is that our sin put Jesus on the cross. Uh, Tim Keller says, this is really, this thing is this distinction between Christianity and all other religions. He says, before you are convicted by the Spirit of God, you see sin as breaking rules. But when you are convicted, you see sin as breaking God's heart. You see the difference? Before you are convicted by the Spirit of God, you see sin as breaking rules. But when you are convicted by the Spirit of God, you see sin as breaking God's heart. It goes from external and something else to very personal. And the hearers of that message hadn't literally nailed Jesus to the cross, but they were as guilty as those who put him there. They were personally culpable for what Jesus went to the cross for, just like you and I. Personally culpable. And we have to make that connection. If you're already a believer, we have to be reminded of that connection. If you don't know Jesus, that is the truth. Keller also in the the same message where he he makes that statement, he refers to this story of, uh, uh, it's it's a legendary story 
of the town of Bedgellert in Wales. And maybe some of you know that story, but Bedgellert, that means the, basically the grave of Gellert. Gellert was a dog, a beloved hunting dog uh, that belonged to uh, a powerful guy at that, back in these you know, ancient days, uh, Llewellyn. So Llewellyn had come in from uh, a day, and it was an evening. He goes into his house, and he finds his newborn child's bed, and the bed is covered in blood. And so he's terrified, and he sees his dog step into the room. Gellert steps into the room, and Gellert has blood all over his jaw and, and is coming down on his chest. And so in, re- in a rage, he pulls out you know, his, his knife, and he just kills the dog, just puts it to death immediately, this beloved dog of his. And as soon as the silence dies down and the whimpering of the dog dies down, he hears the whimpering of his child in the other room. And so he goes into the other room, and there is the baby alive, and beside the baby is this larger-than-life dead wolf. child would have been killed by the wolf without Gellert's sacrifice. You know, right now when I told that story, I felt something for the dog. It's a similar thing. There's, there's a tie-in. Llewellyn didn't realize what the dog had done for his family. And when he doesn't fully understand... He reaches out in grief, in anger, in rage, and kills Gellert himself. But when the truth becomes apparent, he, he feels completely different, differently. Gellert had both delivered and died for the family. But upon understanding, there was a sense of, and a feeling of conviction that fell on the Welland. See, just like those hearers, those 3,000 who responded... We need to admit that we are sinful. Like the hearers of Peter's message at that time, it needs to go to our heart. And though we didn't wield the hammer physically, he put himself there for each one of us. So there is communication. There is a conviction that comes. And there is a confession. And the confession was that these people were moved beyond conviction to action. In Acts 2.37, it says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, cut to the heart, and, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What will we do about this? They knew that change had to occur. Something had to happen. We are cut deeply deeply to the heart. And when that happened, y'all, just like us, they fell into that repeated natural process that all humans do. We ask, what can we do? What can I do right now? It's embedded in our fallen nature to try to perform, to try to do something to make it right. It was true for them True for us. How can I fix this? I want to fix this now. How do I fix it? What, about, what are the steps? How do I move through this? How do I not make it worse? And in asking those questions, we misunderstand. 
because we can't fix it. We can't do it. All we can do is look with faith on Jesus and the cross and believe that his resurrection proves that he completed the work of paying for our sin. Peter says this to them in in, uh, verse 37. I'll read 37 again and then 38. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, it sounds like he says you've got to do something, right? But think about that for a moment. Nothing is earned by repenting or believing. Nothing is earned through baptism. These are acts that uh, if I was speaking to someone uh, who didn't know anything about Jesus, I would say this is something like signing the adoption papers. It's not a lot of work. You're, you're acknowledging what he has done for you. You're moving to belief. And then in baptism, you're going to celebrate that belief. You're not earning anything. You're just moving into that relationship. Paul clarifies this in Romans 9. In Romans 10, 9 and 10. This is just a little bit before the Romans passage we read a moment ago. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Conviction. Confession. Belief. So let me wrap up with this thought. Um, Believers... Uh, We need to speak the words of the gospel. We have to find a way to get the words of the gospel into the hearts and minds of our friends. You don't have to be verbose. You don't have to be eloquent. The Spirit will do the work. But for those of us who have not crossed that line of faith, I love how Peter, in his message, quotes from memory himself from Joel 2.32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What shall we do? Call on the name of the Lord. Maybe this is the day, if you are in that place, you haven't crossed that line of faith, to be convicted, to confess, to believe, to admit, like believers who come before you, that you put the sword through him that you hammered the nails in, even though you were not there. If, if that's a decision that you want to make, I would encourage you to speak to any of us that you know up here. We'll, we'd love to talk to you. Tyler, you're going to 